0: Top 5, because 10 is too many, Top 5, because Stubbs is too busy, Top 5, I don't know what he's up to, but he's clearly busy, so let's talk about some tunes, cause it's Top
1: 5!
0: Yeah yeah yeah, yeah 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 thank you herb I don't know why I mean it's kind of it wasn't really on purpose that uh both the big show and tof's top five would would kick off with herb songs but it just works. It just works. That one was, um, it was used on a very old SNL skit from like, I think the second season, it was a dating game sketch where, where Gilda Radner played a dating game contestant. That was a little off, you know? And uh, <laughs> it was, it was really funny. But they intro of the Scott uh, Bill Murray was the host of the Data Game it was really funny, name. so they they hosted with that song and Nubs, who's who's too busy um, to be here today, unfortunately, just busy, busy guy. He and I used to, you know, we just thought that song was so funny, and come to find out, it's it's a Herb Albert tune, Herb Albert, with a P, you know, not Albert. And the one we use on Two Tunes and Album is this song called Butterball. It's like a deep cut off of Whipped Cream and Other Delights. So there you go. Anyway, welcome. to Top Five, Episode um, Six. A cool story with this band against many of the odds, I would say, whether it's personality odds or group dynamic odds or ego odds or this band and this front man, I would say in particular has found a way to to plow through and not only remain, you know, pretty, pretty relevant and, and pretty active, but also at least to the best of his ability do so with almost the entire original band, you know, which is kind of neat. Cause It's one of those bands that at a certain time, you probably gave them a 5% chance of playing together as a unit again. And there's one member who, uh, speaking of being a little off, you know, she didn't, she didn't quite make it through the, uh, process, but for the unquestionable front man and the, uh, other two gentlemen in this band, they are not only still around, but, but still around in a rather Acclaimed fashion creatively, which is pretty neat, and uh, and we'll talk about this group of Midwest fellas. But first, let's get to an album worth mentioning. I
1: will now sell five copies of the three EPs by the beta Band.
0: So, uh, a band that I don't know. I I used to love this band. I mean, Queens of the Stone Age, just. At one point, they were so good, and you know, Josh Homme just brilliant in terms of at the least reinventing a bit of a, a genre, and at best, you know, almost kind of creating something new in terms of a sludgy, you know, kind of sort of abrasive. I think it's been called desert rock. I don't really know what that means, but whatever it is, I think it does apply to something that Josh sort of. Created and brought to the table. And boy, they did some incredible things kind of through, I would say, Era Vulgaris. And it's funny because they picked up the guy who I think is the best current drummer in rock and roll, you know, that being John Theodore, who obviously we talked about on the big show in the Mars Volta episode because he was a member of the Mars Volta during the Francis the Mute recording which is the album that we highlighted and there's some just nasty incredible drumming on that record and they picked up Theodore a few years ago and a couple of albums ago and it was I was so excited and it I don't know it almost seems like their work hasn't been as good as a whole I mean I love listening to the drumming it's um this record and I'm and I'm referring to Queens of the Stone Age their most recent release from about a month or so ago called In Times Do Roman. Every song title is a play on words. Um obscenery paper machete, made to parade, carnivor, what the peep say, emotion sickness, which they completely stole from Silver Chair, by the way. Straight jacket fitting. And it's like, okay, okay, I get it. You're doing some play on word stuff in your song titles, but as gimmicky as that kind of is, uh, the, the music almost sounds gimmicky to me. It's, they, they've become a little bit, um, I don't know. It's almost too sludgy and too draggy. I, I don't, I don't know. I am not really feeling it, and, nor have I the last couple of records that they've released. And I don't mind their sort of dirty sound. I mean, Era Vulgaris is a very filthy kind of record and I, and I love it. But it, I don't know. It seems like they're running out of plays to run. So, anyway, take a listen in Times New Roman. Maybe you disagree. But uh, yeah, I guess my my album worth mentioning is a bit of a downer. Yeah, so sorry about that. But great band. But I feel like they're kind of wobbling a little bit here recently. So anyway, let me know if you disagree. So we're going to focus on a band that that certainly has gone through wobbles of its own, and that's going to happen. When you're around for, you know, 30 plus years, it's gone through a bunch of different iterations. It's gone through some different lineups. Part of, you know, what kind of got me thinking about, um, cause we haven't done a, a episode on this band, Billy Corgan recently, um, was on the Joe Rogan podcast and also on the Bill Maher podcast, which are two of my favorites. And frankly, two of the most important voices I think in society right now, Joe Rogan and Bill Maher, in the spirit of being unpredictable—that's what I love about both those guys. In in their interview style and in their opinions and takes on things, is they are pretty unpredictable. And God bless that, because God, part of what's just screwed up right now is so many avenues and so many voices where you know exactly what they're going to say before they say it. But I thought both of them. Captured their time with Billy Corgan extremely well. He is a fascinating dude. You know, sometimes you come across people that you can tell have either gone through incredible phases of self assessment and self discovery, or they've had a load of therapy. And both are, you you know, wonderful, whichever one, whichever one you need, whichever one you choose. But you can tell people that are kind of seasoned and have some battle scars and come out of it with humility and experience that can then be applied, you know, to their sort of later years. Cause let's face it, these early nineties, mid nineties rock stars are now on the back half of their lives and it's families and parenthood and, you know, figuring out what you want your sort of musical legacy to be. And do you still have the ability to execute creatively? And I've just found it fascinating to listen to him talk about that journey. And one of the things I have loved, always loved and respected about Billy Corgan is he always wanted to be in a band. You know, he could have very easily, very easily at many times throughout his career, done the solo thing or, you know, become a you know, a featuring artist or you know, whatever. I mean, you've seen it with so many people that have sort of gone there, and Billy Corgan always not only wanted to be in a band, but I think has always wanted to be in his band. And the fact that was able to kind of reconvene things with two dudes that, I mean, he and James had tremendous problems, tremendous problems, financially, creatively, you know, ego-wise. During the height of Smashing Pumpkins fame. And of course, Jimmy Chamberlain has had personal problems, you know, with drug use, et cetera. And, and and Billy has had his share too. I mean, listen, you know, this was not a guy that probably at all times was, (laughs) to put it kindly, very easy to deal with. And frankly, there were times where you probably didn't want to be in a band with him. But the fact that everybody has sort of come to terms and we'll get to Darcy in a second, but at least for that, those three, that they are playing together, touring together, creating together is really neat. And Jimmy James was a hell of a drummer. You know, there's no question about that. He, he played the drums in a way that few others had in terms of his touch, in terms of his ability to create fills that had voices and had direction and had meaning to a song and to see it all kind of, you know, come back into form is great. Now, Darcy was the bass player and I think Darcy went a little nutso, you know, there, there's, I think the most recent, unless something has happened in the last couple of years, the most recent sort of public ish appearance from her is she randomly called into a radio show once and was just like, absolutely like belligerent and like not making sense. And it was just crazy. And So I, you know, who knows what, uh, her issues were or, you know, bottom line is that, um, visually she was a very important piece of this band. I mean, it was my first at age 12. It was my first sort of foray into holy crap. Like this, like hard rock grunge band has a chick bassist. Like that's awesome. I'm, I don't think she paved the way and by any means, but I do think that at a time where you were kind of keying in on how band dynamics work at that time. And certainly for one of the biggest bands in the world, which they were, it was always kind of cool and interesting. And it's sort of too bad that, you know, that she's not able to be a part of the thing, but regardless of Darcy, it's pretty neat that the other three have been able to make it work. They, they, in my opinion, have never really been a terribly good live band. In fact, I think the last couple of years, if you watch some of their full shows on YouTube, it's probably the best they've ever played and sounded because they're not rushing everything and Corgan's actually singing. And I mean, there was a time we, we went and saw this band live a few times and they just played their songs like way too fast. And parts that were like catered to that Beautiful sort of vocal treatment from Corgan, he would just start screaming. It's very out of place, and you know, I don't know. I just, I was never impressed seeing this band. Now, if I went and saw him now, based on what I've seen on YouTube and and whatnot, it, it probably would be a little bit different because they're tighter, they're more focused. I think they've gotten to a good place, but but during their heyday, this was not a very good live band. I mean, I think they you could almost say they had a little bit of a lack of awareness and as intelligent of a musician and a person that Billy Corgan is. I think he showed a complete lack of intelligence in terms of how their band executed live. Not to say that you have to get up there and play everything, you know, exactly the way it is on the record, but you know, you also don't want to be like counting gross who is the worst live band in rock and roll of all time. Because they refuse to, Adam Duritz refuses to like sing the songs the way they're supposed to be. So he gets up there and does all this freestyling and it's just awful. They are the worst. They are the worst live band in rock and roll of all time. I'll I'll just throw it out there. Prove me wrong. Why don't we get to it? We have two off Siamese Dream. We have one off Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness. We have one off Gish. And then the one I just touched on is off of, is off Oceania there. 2012 album. So, what do you say? We get down to it. Let's go. Okay, so there are going to be three honorable mentions that you know uh, we're we're kind of tough to not include here. But we start with the oldest song on the list for the band, which is off their first real album, a record called Gish, going all the way back to 1991.
1: Five. Number Five. Please, call me Johnny Five. Johnny, you have taken name for yourself?
0: And that song, which kicks off ToF's top five in the fifth position, is Rhinoceros. It's a pretty killer bass song. It's kind of a rolling, you know, wide open, you know, pure octave bass part, but it really provides a strong underneath you know for what is guitar and vocal wise you know sort of more of a you know standard kind of pumpkins tune but love the way this builds it's got the quiet loud quiet loud thing as nubs always calls it which defined the early 90s this thing picks up the tempo a bit and gets you into a pretty rocking section and a killer guitar solo which wasn't huge in, in in smashing pumpkin songs but boy it works on this one Just a great section and, and you know this is something i mean this is 1991 this is you know kind of right around the time where ritual de habitual and this were kind of what was defining this new sound and this is a six and a half minute you know kind of journey uh here in track three that at the time brought some dynamics And some feeling and some guitar work and all those things, and vocal treatment, frankly, that were pretty unique at the time here. All right, so track three. Boy, tough on a song like that to cut it off at any point but you know we gotta you know we gotta do it these are half hour episodes you know but rhinoceros track three on gish kicks us off in pretty blazing fashion as we begin 12 top five let's get to
1: the next one four <laughs> fine shot four. oh i should have yelled two
0: this is the one song off Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness which probably had a little bit of double album syndrome that could have been condensed into an absolutely unbelievable uh record and it's not an absurd double album I mean I mean it's you know it's did quite well and you know tough to argue with but you know if you kind of stripped away some of the f- filler and went with kind of all the standout tracks into like a 12 or 13 track piece. I mean, holy moly, that would have been something, you know, pretty strong. This is a song that I didn't really appreciate fully until we started covering it. And we we cover this acoustically, and it is the song that comes toward the end of disc one, dawn to dusk on melancholy, and that is track number 12, muzzle. I think it's one of those songs that you sort of have to factor in the backdrop a little bit of the record that it's on because melancholy had moments that were pretty amazing musically and I mean just looking at you know tonight tonight and you know bolt with butterfly wings which is not on the top 5 I'll just tell you right now um but was a huge hit um you know other songs that that had i mean 33 songs that had a lot of different dynamics and all that and it was cool it was experimental but at times it got a little much and the thing i always loved about muzzle is god it was just like getting back to basics you know and they didn't try to make it too layered or too dynamic or too uh, dramatic it was kind of like just a rocker has some just killer sections the middle the ending just completely badass one of the shorter songs on this record which also is another element of it that i really like you know didn't try to do too much just rock baby every now and again corgan wanted to just rock and i was like that such a great breakdown and then it goes bonkers at the end and god i hate turning it off you can already tell this this pumpkins episode is going to be one that you know tough to turn the songs off but hey you gotta you know can't play the whole damn thing muzzle comes in at number four let's get to number three This song is off Oceania and does not have Jimmy Chamberlain or James Eha. This is the only track in the top five that certainly more of kind of the later modern lineup of the Pumpkins before, you know, reuniting with some of those original members. And this was a good record. You know, I, I, it, it went pretty under the radar. This song in particular I actually learned of through another radio appearance. He, you know, Billy's always good on the radio. He he was on Howard Stern uh, promoting this record. And I remember he went on there and he played acoustic versions of a couple of the Pumpkins classics. But then he actually played the studio version of this song, which it actually wasn't one of the quote unquote singles from the record. But um, he played the entire song as part of this. Um, appearance on Stern And I was just like blown away I was like wow That's an awesome song and Bought the record It was a good record And comes in at number three And I think it's some of um, Billy's more beautiful work And that's a pretty high bar Because a lot of the stuff he did Could certainly be categorized in that way This is track four Off Oceania From 2012 And this is Violet Race <laughs> I remember Billy saying I think I think Howard asked him, you know, what is that song about? And he said, well like 80% of my songs, it's a love song. And from there, I mean the lyrics are pretty pretty haunting, pretty romantic, pretty amazing. And obviously a backdrop of synth keys and guitar that stays pretty clean and pretty steady throughout. It has a great groove and rhythm to it and hell of a song. board part really is the sort of crux of the tune it sort of takes you through the intro it's present throughout and then it's really active and present during the uh outro which is probably the best part of the song A song from their, his, their, whatever you want to call it, later catalog. A pretty good record and a standout song. Violet Ray's in it. Number three. These next two songs come off of the same album. Gee, what album do you think that is?
1: Utah, give me two.
0: That album is a little record you may have heard of called Siamese Dream. And the top two songs within Toast's top five both come from said record, which hard to argue with it being their best. It was a classic. It was important. Maybe two songs you wouldn't expect compared to some others. But coming in at number two, again, a song that was kind of well known. I think there was a video for it. I think it got a little bit of radio airplay, but the second best song. By the band, and I guess also the second best song on this record. Coming in at number two, track five (laughs) Rocket. The song is so good it's tight you know sometimes these these guys particularly in the studio could get a little all over the place but the bass lines particularly the rhythm section the bass work and the drum part by chamberlain are just outstanding under a song that's fairly simple um but boy does it jam Not trying to do too much here Right Kind of staying Staying in the lane of the song Which is always a good thing Um, Gotta take you to the ending part When the Breakdown occurs And that guitar lick takes you through it This is just so rocking right here Yeah. So awesome. So awesome how that all comes back in. Very thoughtful song but very simple. I think in the video they're all like in a rocket ship and it like like made out of aluminum foil and it all like takes off at that moment or something, I don't know. But regardless of the music video the song itself comes in at number two and that thing that's just one of those jams that maybe a little have its time we are at number one same record different tune let's go
1: it's a good thing it's the best you <laughs>
0: Was it a big hit? Was it an MTV darling? Was it a fan favorite? Not necessarily. This one probably could be considered more of a deep cut. And again, just like Rhinoceros, we're kind of bookended here with six and a half minute songs. Because that's what this clocks in at. One of the longer songs on Siamese Dream. Stuck right in the middle at track seven. What a ride. You are taking on when you go start to finish on track seven, SOMA. Great piano work here. Great tempo Sort of mid-tempo But comes off like a Ballad It's just Beautiful And then you get to this kind of middle part That sets up what's to come very whimsical middle section and all it's really doing is setting you up. The previous song was Rocket. This is another rocket ship here. I, I air guitar just now I air drummed and air guitared. I gotta Admit it since it's ridiculous But I did it Let's Keep it going And then into a pretty blistering guitar solo and a really cool bridge. Then it takes you out again. I mean, good Lord. It was not a tough, I mean, there's two more minutes to the song, which is just I hate turning it off. Not a difficult choice. I mean, Soma makes number one for me fairly easily and it's the dynamics. It's, it's a ride. I mean, it's, it's, some of their songs were just musically just a journey. And that one is every single section just builds you, you know. And even after it sort of comes unglued and just wide open at that particular part, it still finds ways to continue to build all the way to the end. Soma is a brilliant song of its time and holds up extremely well and comes in at number one tops the list the second song off siamese dream on the top five we had a couple others from that record that were honorable mentions today these are the it's really the hits okay so so the the greatest hits collection is are, are the honorable mentions here it's today 1979 and cherub rock listen i don't care that these were mainstream hits these are amazing songs you know 1979 the work done with flood Who produced and I'm sure helped arrange that song, particularly the, you know, sort of electronic drum track element. And today is a fabulous song and Cherub Rock, you know, kicked off Siamese Dream in just classic fashion. So didn't make the top five, but those are three unbelievably good songs, whether they were hits or overplayed or not. So to recap. Rhinoceros off Gish, number five. Muzzle off Melancholy, number four. Violet Rays off Oshania, number three. And then Rocket at number two. And Soma also off Siamese Dream at number one. Well, a band that has not only stood the test of time, but has sustained the test of time. And it's pretty neat that it's an operation that has found a way to proceed. It's an artist that was able to kind of find at least nearly all of his former bandmates and find a way to get the thing back together. And I think it's a pretty neat story of rock and roll Midwest rock and roll for these Chicagoans. And I don't think they're quite done. They seem to be continuing to innovate and produce and execute. And Hey, that's a good thing. The best (laughs) we need we need more bands like that continuing to do what they do well hey that's a wrap on episode six for toast top five and we will see you again for episode seven hope you enjoyed it be good